Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hayes, and this week I am not joined by Luke Boggs. Instead, I'm joined by a good friend of mine, Tori Slatton. Thanks for coming on, Tori. I'm so excited. I've been wanting to be like, I've been wanting to make appearance on this podcast for a long time now. <laughs> I wanted you on the podcast, so I'm a really big fan. <laughs> this is a dream come true for all of us. Um, so Tori is here because we are going to do a Supreme Court special, which is. A little bit outside of our wheelhouse in Georgia, but for a lot of people who voted in Georgia and a lot of people who pay attention to legal issues, this is something that's going to kind of help define what the Supreme Court is like, potentially for a very long time. Um, So that's really just going to be our only topic for today, and then you're going to hear from Luke and me on a regular show again next week. Um, So I guess just to dive right in, um, so um, as you're probably familiar with, Uh, Last year, Antonin Scalia passed away, and uh, President Obama had nominated Merrick Garland to be on the court, but Senate Republicans had um, said that, basically made the argument that in the last year of a presidency, you should wait until after the election to nominate somebody and let a new president do it and let the election kind of decide um, how, you know, how the court should go based on who the new president is. And so... Which, by the way, was completely unprecedented and arguably very unreasonable and possibly even unconstitutional. I've made the argument that it's unconstitutional many times because I think it's absolutely ridiculous. No, we should definitely dive right into that. Um, But to get from here to there, so the uh, Senate Republicans basically blocked Obama's nominee through the end of his presidency. And then, as everybody knows, Donald Trump won the 2016 election and he nominated Neil Gorsuch to take Antonin Scalia's seat on the court. Um, So Neil Gorsuch, uh, he's pretty well known in legal circles. He was appointed to the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Tenth Circuit by President George W. Bush in 2006, and he was confirmed unanimously at the time. Um, He's got good Supreme Court credentials, kind of the standard ones you would expect. He's young. He's a Harvard Law graduate. He he clerked for prominent conservative justices, and he was a high-ranking official in the Bush administration in their Justice Department. Um, so he is the nominee that we're going to consider on the court. Um, but just to kind of kick things off, the the conversation around him to this point really has focused more on what Senate Republicans did to Neil to Merrick Garland that even led Neil Gorsuch to be nominated. Um, and so we talked a little bit about this on Peach Pod before, but for our you know legal friends and our legal audience, we thought it'd be worth it to start with digging into what Senate Democrats should do in opposition to the Gorsuch nomination and how they should react to what maybe is an unconstitutional block of Merrick Garland. Um, So, Tori, why don't you kick us off? What do you think Senate Democrats should do, and why do you think that this might be unconstitutional? Okay, well, because that's a difficult question for me to answer, the Democrat in me, and more on my political spectrum is is I want to say, like, oh, yeah, absolutely, obstruct and block him the way that they blocked Garland. On the lawyer in me and on the constitutional side of things, I just cannot accept that that's the new norm. I think eventually it would lead to a constitutional crisis. And when you get to that point, I think that what you're doing is unconstitutional. And what I mean by unconstitutional crisis is if the Senate decides to block every single nominee and it doesn't even have to be a Supreme Court, then eventually, you know, no spots could get filled. And so what happened with the Garland case is they refused to even give him a full hearing and vote him out of committee. Because it's one thing to give somebody a full hearing. It's another thing not to let him even out of committee because we didn't know a lot about Garland Mm -hmm. because he never got a confirmation hearing. Yeah. And so I can't really accept that level of obstruction. It would be one thing if he got a fair vote, but... um, yeah, I really, I hope that the Democrats don't do that as much as it pains me to say. What do you think? I don't, I, I've made the case before that I, I think, unfortunately, this, the, the argument sort of on a norm basis for whether or not it would have been unconstitutional or just, I mean, not unconstitutional, but just wrong in terms of a norm of how the Senate works is that if Democrats had won the 2016 election, they could have, you know, put forth the candidate in Merrick Garland or in somebody else that they had wanted to. Um, Unfortunately, because the Republicans made 
this decision they made the 2016 election somewhat about the Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. And then they didn't win. Um, The Democrats didn't win. And so at this point, I think it is difficult to take a stand that requires you to use the filibuster, which may end up being broken if Senate Republicans decide that um, they don't want to allow the filibuster on Supreme Court nominations anymore. It would be following a previous precedent set on, um, I think it was it was some sort of lower level judges that um, Democrats had used the nuclear option on earlier in Obama's administration. Um, so there is some precedent there for the Senate to sort of strip this uh, protection away and, and the Senate is becoming less and less of a, a body that operates on kind of a unanimous basis or, or close to unanimity. It's becoming one where uh, 51 votes is more likely to be able to um, get you whatever you want if you're the majority party. Um, well, and it's scary in some sense that that level of obstruction, I feel, leads to other branches reacting And so if the Democrats were to obstruct after a certain point, I can actually see uh, President Trump, and he might have a legitimate argument on this, saying that the Democrats have then waived their right to advise and consent. Because if if they refuse to advise, then I actually think that is a legitimate argument and just say, well, he's on the court regardless. Yeah. Um, I think that would eventually, ironically, go back to the Supreme Court to be decided. And they'd probably, if I was to guess, say set parameters on what advising consent means because right now it's a lot of gray area but i i hope that it doesn't get to that point i hope that we're able to function i hope that congress is able to function as a government what do you think advising consent should mean if if i was a supreme court justice and i was laying it out i would say that probably 90 days is an appropriate time to have a hearing unless there's some crazy extraordinary circumstances like we're in a really horrible war And there's something else that requires Congress's attention. But if Congress refuses to hold a hearing, I I think you have a legitimate argument that they have waived that that duty. Mm -hmm. Um, I had kind of floated the idea that if you were going to, as a Democrat, fall on the filibuster sword, which may ultimately end up, I mean, I kind of feel like if they use it, it's probably going to go away. I don't think that, especially if they use it on Garland, but I think... Maybe if they use it in the next couple of years, they, I think the Republicans might pull the plug on the filibuster. But to me, it would make more sense in terms of sort of like a PR strategy or trying to make the case to the American people that um, if you were to use the filibuster on a subsequent justice, say it's uh, Ginsburg that leaves the court, the 2016 election kind of to me has a split story. Yes, Donald Trump won the Electoral College, but Hillary Clinton won the popular vote. And it's very clear that we are a country that is very divided. Um, so replacing Scalia with Gorsuch doesn't necessarily move the court all that much in one direction. But if Trump was to get a second justice and was to able be able to replace Ginsburg, particularly if that happens after a midterm election where Democrats pick up seats, which I think is most likely to happen, um, they have a much stronger argument to say, you know, maybe the American people don't want a very liberal Supreme Court. We're a very divided country, but they also don't want one that swings far to the right. Um, and that, to me, is is a better opportunity for them to use their sort of last tool in the toolbox in the filibuster. Um, and it may, that because that case, I think, is stronger, it may make Republicans think twice about pulling the plug on the filibuster. And it may actually make them pick a more moderate nominee than they would um, so it may be a tool that I could actually work. Whereas right now, I, d- I just don't think it's, you know, chance of success is very good. It sounds like you're saying from just a political strategy, this isn't the battle to fight. Is yeah. that what I'm getting from it? Yeah. That's interesting. Because I'm more thinking from a constitutional like standpoint. It, it scares me. It scares me to see the norms being broken because mm-hmm. I think that sets it up for checks and balances um, disappearing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but we'll leave that there for now. Um, it's definitely going to be interesting to see how Democrats approach this in the Senate. If, if you've been paying attention to politics, there's been a lot of pressure on Senate Democrats to kind of oppose Trump at every turn. And this is probably one of the bigger ones. Um, so a lot of it's going to depend on how this uh, administration continues in its early days as to whether or not Democrats are going to um, how much of a fight they're going to feel like they have the ability to put up. Can I ask one more thing sure. with you, though, uh, just while we're on this subject is 
do you think that maybe if the Democrats don't put up a fight, they're kind of going to isolate the really radical side of the liberal wing that seems to be taking over a lot of the party? Do you think that they might just fight almost as a symbol? Yeah, I'm concerned on that um, in, a, in a lot of different areas in politics. I think what they need to do is they need to oppose Gorsuch and, and call him out for every instance in which he would uphold values that Democrats don't uphold and make it very clear that they don't agree with some of the positions that they think he'll take on the court, make it clear that he won't offer some of the same protections that a more moderate or more liberal justice would, and then to vote against him when the time comes. I mean, there is no reason. It's sort of been a norm in the Senate that if a nominee is qualified, they're going to get, you know, like 80 or 90 votes. There's, they only need 51 to get him across the finish line, the Republicans do. So there's no reason for a Democrat to vote for a Supreme Court justice that's mm-hmm. not going to uphold their values. And then I think at that point, they have to look at their party and say, you know what, we didn't win the election. And um, they only need 51 votes to actually get him confirmed. And we have to pick our battles carefully. Um, and I think that there are other ways in which Trump will do things that are less popular, that'll make him more vulnerable politically. And I don't think that, you know, Gorsuch is somebody that's really easy to nail down as somebody very unpopular or sort of, he's a conservative, but he's not crazy. He's a pretty reasonable conservative. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I just haven't seen a lot of pandering to the rational side of either party. So I have my doubts, but I hope, I hope that what you laid out, I hope that's what happens. I mean that the Republicans found themselves in this position back in 2009 and students of politics will remember the the growth of the Tea Party and, and how that kind of destabilized their party. I think if you're on the left and you're looking across the aisle at the other side, even though they have all three branches of government and they're going to get a Supreme Court nominee, I don't think that they have a lot of stability as a party. That is something that the left should want to emulate. So I think that that's just something they have to think twice about when they're picking their battles. Um, But just to dig into Gorsuch a little bit. So we're just going to walk through some of the, um, you know, main points of his judicial opinions and sort of what to expect from him in with the expectation that he is probably going to end up on the court unless, you know, something that we don't foresee comes up. Um, so first on our list is Gorsuch's views on some of these religious liberty cases. So, Tori, why don't you get us started with what you think um, Gorsuch's position is and what we should be paying attention to? On religious cases generally or? Um, yeah, religious cases generally. Okay, because the one that obviously stands out is... Um, his opinions on Hobby Lobby. Hobby Lobby was a case that came out in 2014, I think is correct. Um, Hobby Lobby came actually from a stipulation in the ACA that required employers to provide employees with uh, certain kinds of contraceptives. The owner of Hobby Lobby said that he was morally opposed to that because his religious beliefs, because of his religious beliefs, he could not provide contraceptives to his employees. And so, I mean, the logic in that seems flawed to me because he's not the one who's taking contraceptives. He's just denying them to somebody else. He's just denying that choice to somebody else. But the court ruled against what I would have ruled. And uh, yeah, this is one of those cases that Kennedy really swung right that a lot of people weren't expecting. So Gorsuch obviously agreed with the way the court ruled. He stressed that religious liberties are um, the most important thing and that you don't give up your freedom of religion because you start a corporation. And so if you have a closely held corporation like Hobby Lobby, you can deny providing contraceptives to your employees. What do you think that this um, means for some other future cases that might come up? I mean, I know that there's been um, you know, some courts that have considered cases around other people who are business owners who might refuse to, you know, participate in same-sex marriage ceremonies because of their religious beliefs. I mean, sort of broadly, um, you know, just sort of from a protection of religious rights versus protection of civil rights in other areas. What do you think Gorsuch's place on the court might mean for um, how those issues might get ruled in the future? Um. 
There are a couple things about the way that he talks about Hobby Lobby that speaks to me. One thing, though, that I wouldn't do is read too much into his opinion on this. Mm -hmm. Because I think what we want to do is look at the way he ruled in Hobby Lobby and say, well, the most extreme version, Gorsuch would probably vote to overturn Roe versus Wade. I would just point out that Hobby Lobby is a really unique case, and the way he ruled in this might not dictate the way he rules in future cases, even on birth control. Or um, women's health and rights. That being said, I have no idea um, because he hasn't had a long track record with um, the right to choose. What Hobby Lobby says to me is he is going to put religious freedom first in a lot of these cases. So I would be more worried about, yeah, um, probably LGBT cases if it came down to discriminating based on religion. Because I think for a lot of people, that's the natural step beyond Hobby Lobby. And that's something that I worried about for a long time with the court swinging right. I think that that case is inevitably going to make it up to the court in the next couple of years. And with him on it, I think that um, it you might see a ruling that gives the right to discriminate in certain cases. Now, do you know, is that markedly different than how the court might have come down with Scalia on it if this had come up two years ago? I would actually say most of what the rulings are at this point aren't market wouldn't come out differently because the court is still balanced. Mm -hmm. Um, Even if Gorsuch is confirmed, it'll go back to its previous status quo with four on the right, four on the left, and Kennedy always being the toss-up. So, I mean, in that sense, there's some kind of comfort because good rulings come from balanced courts. Mm -hmm. Uh, Why is that? That good rulings come from balanced courts? Yeah. Because if a court is too left or too right, then it kind of stops being a debate and an argument. You stop getting really strong legal arguments on both sides. And that discourse is actually what shapes really good lasting law. So, I mean, the best example is Justice Scalia and Ruth Bader Ginsburg. They talk about this all the time. They would trade decisions. They would talk through. They would argue with each other. And their opinions always came out better. Because, like, they would read each other's dissents before they would write their own opinions or revise their opinions after. And that's kind of the way that the law works. And it doesn't, it sounds like it shouldn't be that arbitrary, but it is. And the best lasting decisions come from balance courts. Mm-hmm. Um, this kind of bounces around a little bit, but Merrick Garland was not somebody who had a very distinct ideological or, or judicial background, right? I, I've heard some criticism of people from people who say that it would be better to have a court that has people who are, you know, strongly in one direction and strongly in another versus a court of nine people who are just kind of mushy and in the middle. Is that, you know, part of your case about how better law gets made or? I, I once called Merrick Garland a ham sandwich (laughs) compared to Justice Scalia as a lobster dinner, (laughs) Uh, which I'm obviously very much to the left, but I have a deep respect for um, that level of like deep intellectual legal minds like the one Scalia had. And so, yeah, again, the best arguments come from people who are really passionate on the left and passionate on the right arguing it out. Mm -hmm. Um, If you read Kennedy's arguments, they're usually a little bit boring, straightforward and very narrow. Um, So it, puts in a position in the future to be overturned, then overturned again. And then you can't, does that make sense? Mm, Yeah. Yeah. Um, So something that uh, Neil Gorsuch is very passionate about, um, one of the the few legal things that I am also somewhat passionate about is the idea of Chevron deference. And this is a, um, a standard in administrative law that does come from a ruling related to the gas station Chevron. Um, it's a case that comes from 1984 that involves the Clean Air Act. Um, but basically, the lesson that comes out of this is that it is essentially magnifies the power of whoever is in the White House. Um, and it does this by allowing agencies to, in places where Congress has not sort of very expressly and explicitly, de- you know, kind of delineated how a law should be implemented, and sort of gives deference to an agency to say, if they come up with some sort of interpretation in an area that's not entirely clear, but the court can decide that it's a reasonable interpretation, then the court tends to defer to the opinions of experts that tend to fill agencies. 
Um, this is something, this is one of the few areas of daylight between Gorsuch and Scalia. Um, you know, a lot of their legal background was very similar, but this is something that stood out, at least in my prep um, for this episode. And um, this is something that Gorsuch is very critical of. He says that um, the fact that Chevron and another case that's called Brand X, which is a similar case, permit executive bureaucracies to swallow huge amounts of core judicial and legislative power and concentrate federal power in a way that seems more than a little difficult to square with the constitution of the framers design. Uh, basically he thinks that this throws the balance of power way too much toward the executive. Um, what do you think of his take on Chevron? Is it something that you agree with or um, you know, what are some holes in how his opinion might actually play out kind of in the real world. I mean, whether or not I agree, first I have to point out that just that sentence alone is such a beautifully well-crafted, like, constitutional argument that the con law lawyer in me is just kind of nerding out right now. So, which goes back to, like, he's a very rational judge. His decisions are well thought out, and I'm generally pretty impressed with his, with his opinions. That being said, no, I... <laughs> Generally, I don't agree. I think the criticism of Chevron is fair. I think you don't want agencies having absolute autonomy, but you also don't want any autonomy at all. Because if you have somebody who's worked in a really obscure area of government for 20 years, they're probably the ones who know how to implement regulations correctly. And you can't expect Congress to be experts in every single area of government affairs. And so, especially after working a government agency, I see how much certain regulations look really good on paper, but they can't practically play out. And there's just a lot of wiggle room that you don't have a lot of guidance on. So I think just from a rational perspective, you you can't expect agencies to have no autonomy at all. I, so with, with that being, generally, I agree with the decision in Chevron. Mm-hmm. Um. And some of his concern seems to be, at least, you know, kind of as it relates to how people perceive Congress. Congress is a branch that's closer to the people. Every congressman and every senator represents a smaller group of people than does the president. And ultimately, Supreme Court justices don't get elected by anyone. They're appointed by the president. So um, do you think that Chevron makes it more difficult for people to hold their government accountable for the actions that they take? Or you know, because the president is sort of the most visible figure in government, and we do have a lot of conversations in politics today about how a president is either over-regulating or not in certain areas, um, you know, some of what Trump has already done early in the administration is to roll back some environmental regulations that he made the case for very clearly in the campaign. These were regulations that Obama had implemented that he made the case that they had hurt the coal industry in states like West Virginia and Kentucky um, that was sort of a case where he wanted the public to hold the president accountable for a regulation. Um, do you think that it's, you know, is that possible to do? Was Did we see an example of that? Or or is a case against Chevron that, um, you know, it more of your regulating and your lawmaking should be made by people who are closer and more accountable to you? Well, I mean, first, I think... This doesn't something that really needs to not be lost on this conversation is the fact that Congress can still come in and regulate if they wanted to counter Trump's proposal. If it was that important to their constituents, they could pass a law. I think one of the issues and why Chevron has become so important is that Congress has had a hard time passing anything. And so if Trump passes a regulation they don't like, in theory, they could check him. And so I I just wanted to point that out, that it doesn't give agencies power over Congress. They can't just go against the will of Congress. Um, One issue that I think Chevron has, the way the ruling came down, that I think is a hole in the ruling is that there's not a lot about following the intent of Congress. The wording is more if it doesn't directly oppose Congress. And I think generally in Supreme Court rulings, we leave a lot of wiggle room for like well what was the intent of the law what did congress mean by this what what was it supposed to accomplish and i don't feel that chevron really stressed that enough Mm -hmm. so with that you could kind of go around the will of the people and the intent of these laws that were passed through congress which is supposed to represent the people by not taking into the intent of that but that being said i feel like more often it's just used for practical purposes like 
really executing the law that was made that isn't totally clear. Yeah, one of the things that stood out to me is that the the pace of legislating has actually slowed in the Congress so much. Um, you know, the, just the number of bills passed and the ability of Congress to even to address issues that the public is relatively united on. I, I'm thinking back to in the wake of the Newtown shooting in Connecticut and the debate over relatively minor um, gun control measures that were defeated, you know, despite having really widespread support. Um, if Congress doesn't get to a better place on being able to legislate big issues, much less some of the detailed things where where Chevron seems to play, it does seem just sort of if you care about government, just sort of like being able to do its day-to-day tasks, that Chevron is an important standard to have because it just doesn't feel like Congress has the capacity to, you know, to really manage these things. Even, I mean, they could, but it just doesn't feel like they're there. But, you know, if, if you're if you're a Senate Democrat, should you be concerned? You know, one of the criticisms that I read about um, Gorsuch or re- read about Chevron is that, um, you know, in if you have a Democratic administration, a Democratic administration is going to pursue policy goals that are in line with what Democratic voters and Democratic elected elected representatives want. And so in that case, it's really easy to be like, hey, Chevron's great because it gives us the flexibility to do the things that we want to do. Should Republicans have that same flexibility in, um, you know, when, when there is a Republican administration, if, if Chevron is a tool Democrats can use, should it be a tool Republicans can use? Or should Democrats try to draw a line with Chevron and say, um, you know, Chevron is a tool that Republicans can exploit to either limit environmental regulations or impose in other areas that liberals wouldn't like, um, should that you know that idea affect whether or not a, a Democratic Senate candidate should support or oppose a nominee on the court? I would say no. I don't think that's that in itself is enough of a reason to oppose. I think if you, I because it's not necessarily going to take a lot of power away from Congress because again Chevron is supposed to be a tool for agencies. It's not supposed to take away power away, and there gets to some point where. I mean, you can't possibly even keep these agencies running without some level of autonomy and without the president being able to make some decisions. And I think one thing that you were talking about earlier about knowing when to draw your line, I think that Repu- I think that Senate Democrats, instead of opposing a Supreme Court nomination for this reason, should decide what are hard lines that they're willing to draw that then they would fight against certain regulations within agencies. Mm-hmm. I realized halfway through that question, I had walked into a question that doesn't really apply to Gorsuch because he is opposed to Chevron deference. So he would, to some extent, he would at least provide some cover on Chevron to Senate Democrats because Senate Democrats could make the argument that, well, if Gorsuch comes into the court and Chevron disappears, then this at least this Republican administration would not be able to pursue some of the regulatory changes that... Um, liberals would not like. That is the irony of it, is he would push back against executive power, which is something I've actually read about Gorsuch in a lot of contexts. I think he's definitely more pro-legislative and judicial branch than executive branch, which is interesting that he's Donald Trump's choice. Yeah, I thought that was fascinating. Uh, To some extent, I don't even know if Donald Trump knows that at all. I mean, I don't know how familiar he is with his record, um, but it was interesting to me that, that Trump would, he almost picked somebody who is like temperamentally, intellectually the opposite of Trump and somebody who might limit Trump's power. Do you think though that, um, either, either this would affect the nomination fight or, um, that this would come down if he's on the court? How do you think Gorsuch would, you know, push back on Trump when he's actually on the court? And do you think Trump is going to sit there when he's getting pushed back on and be mad about what he did? I mean, honestly, I see that as a possibility. I think from what I've read, I mean, Gorsuch actually did have a quote about criticism. My understanding is he wasn't really happy about that quote being leaked, but he did criticize Donald Trump. I think he like said that his treatment of judges was disheartening or something. And 
somebody who he's a very from my understanding he's a very rational voter he's not a very emotional voter his opinions are very well thought out um they're based on constitutional principles not really personal ones and so i actually think he probably would never vote political i think he would vote based on his constitutional principles which are going to inevitably contradict trump which again is i when you said i'm not sure if donald trump knows that I mean, to be fair, that's pretty deep in the weeds of like constitutional law is yeah. like how somebody's going to vote on these issues. But I mean, I baseline understanding of the Constitution, you would think somebody who wants more power wouldn't put somebody like that on the court. But who knows? <laughs> well, at least from the reporting, it, it seemed to be this pick was his olive branch to evangelical voters during the primary. He had had a lot of problems with evangelical voters and sort of more purely conservative voters. And so he had put out a list of Supreme Court nominees, which I don't think any presidential candidate had done before, had they, at least in the modern era? I know, Do I don't, I'm really not sure. I don't think so, though. I haven't heard of anyone else doing that. Um, and so part of the case that he made, which sort of stems from where this all started with the Republicans trying to make 2016 about the Supreme Court, is he said, I'm going to tell you who my nominees are going to be, and I'm going to pick from one of these people. Um, and they seem to be, at least according to the reporting, designed to bring evangelicals into the fold, which ultimately kind of helped him. I was pretty impressed with his list. I thought that they were pretty... Re- I mean, obviously, they're not the people I would have chosen because I'm not a conservative. But as far as conservatives, conservatives go, I thought he had a list of pretty rational people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so to move on a little bit. So Gorsuch's you know, biggest intellectual adventure has been um, around the idea of assisted suicide and euthanasia. It was something that he wrote a dissertation on when he was in graduate school and it turned into a book. Um, And basically he makes a very long and well-researched article or a long and well-researched argument that laws that prevent assisted suicide and euthanasia should stay on the books. Um, This was a book that came out back in 2005 and um, he basically premises this idea or makes this case that um, that all human beings have intrinsic value and that the intentional taking of human life by private persons is always wrong. And his entire argument flows from that just sort of basic foundational belief that if you decide that the value of human life is anything other other than just a basic good, um, that you're you know you're violating something about human life. Um, this since Gorsuch doesn't have a lot of direct writing on abortion and cases that deal with abortion, this is, I think, the primary lens through which people might consider how he might rule on an abortion case. Um, Tori, what do you think about that argument and where it might take him on abortion? Well, first off, I find this argument interesting coming from Gorsuch because his other opinions, like I said earlier, were very rational-based and based on constitutional principles. This subject does seem to be a very emotional one for him, and it's one that he goes beyond so much law, case law, like um, co- like basic legal principles, and he goes into his own feelings. That it seems like he's so passionate about this, and some of his quotes about human life, I can't really imagine somebody having that strong of opinions and then being necessarily pro-choice. I can't imagine somebody have this strong of feelings and being anything but anti-abortion. So I don't know. I don't know how he'll rule. And going off of that, there's a lot of ways to be anti-abortion. And it doesn't necessarily mean that he wants to outlaw it across the board, but I can see him likely restricting it in certain areas. What, what about his argument makes you think that he might lean towards restricting it in certain areas, but not necessarily overturn Roe v. Wade. There's nothing necessarily here that makes me think that. I'm more basing it off of the way I, he seems in a lot of ways to be in line with Kennedy, especially on like his reasoning in the Hobby Lobby case is very similar to what Kennedy argued during the case. And I can see somebody like this, maybe not necessarily having a definitive, Well, let me back up a little bit, because like to start, it would be very difficult for any justice at any point, even if the court went red, to overturn Roe versus Wade. 
It's very much ingrained in our legal system at this point. Is a really well-written opinion. It survived three red branches in the past. I don't really see it happening. I do see in this climate, with it being this important of an issue, it being restricted. And with somebody who has even a very rational voting record, I don't see him going back and overturning something that strong. I do see somebody who values life this much restricting it in ways that he could put in the parameters of what he sees as constitutional. And just to describe a little bit for those who who might not be familiar with the book, this he makes this argument about sort of the basic value of human life by saying um, you know, that we make efforts every day to protect human life without a second thought. We do this through homicide laws, you know, big things like that, or some things as small as traffic regulations. Um, we also make efforts to protect life when a nurse or caregiver provides care for someone with Alzheimer's. And he's really balancing his argument against other arguments that life should be valued on some sort of instrumental basis. Um, and that, you know, his case is that if you're caring for someone who has Alzheimer's or someone who has a, um, an illness that they're never going to be able to recover from, there's really not a lot of instrumental value to that. What he's describing, though, seems to be we put a lot of protections in society against other people taking away a life, but not necessarily you taking your own life and you making that choice. And so it seems like he values life so much that there's he seems anti-choice. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? So yeah. I feel like that would translate into an abortion argument. Mm-hmm. And he does go, he goes a little bit, not to get too far into the weeds of this, but if, I mean, if this is a subject you're interested in it, this, I read part of this book in preparation and it, it did feel like, I felt like I knew much more about this than I did when I started. Um, some of, there is a line about intent that he considers. So if you know, life doesn't have to be valued above all things in every instance, it's not like a hard rule. So if you are, a soldier on a battlefield that risks your life to protect others, the risking of your own life is not inherently wrong because the intent of that action is to provide protection to someone else. Um, And it also allows for, you know, at least in this sort of narrow case around sort of medical decisions, it allows for someone to not necessarily actively take their own life, uh, but to refuse treatment that would keep them alive And his line on that has to do with intent. He says that if the intent of refusing treatment to keep you alive is to say, go home and be with your family and and spend your final days in in a, a more comfortable setting versus some treatments that may be invasive and painful, that, you know, there, there's a bit of intent there that makes that a little bit more of a sort of a defensible position than the intent of actually going through with an action to take your own life. Um, I don't know if that intent line, I, w- I was sort of reading this and thinking, I mean, I don't think he would wiggle out of being a, you know, wiggle his way into being a pro-choice justice um, that would, you know, really defeat the point of him being on Trump's shortlist in this instance. But that that idea of intent to me was interesting within this debate, because the intent of getting an abortion could be something different than taking a life. That's an interesting argument i i don't think it's one i don't think that's a conclusion he would necessarily reach yeah but i think that's a lot of arguments like for me as somebody who i am pro-choice but i'm also pro right to die and so and it seems like it would be a contradiction a contradiction to a certain extent but i think if somebody is in their right mind and they choose to terminate a life then i think you should have that right I think before a person is formed and they're not necessarily a person yet, like, and that's the debate is when life begins, I think then it's appropriate to take action with your own body because Mm -hmm. you're not necessarily affecting somebody else's intent. A lot of people would disagree with everything I just said. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, we're a divided country. That's part of why we have uh, justices on the left and on the right of the court. And I will say... I'm a little bit surprised that he takes such a hard line on this because I've met a lot of conservative lawyers who are pro right to die. And so I find it really interesting that this is the subject that he really seems to care a lot about Mm. because it's not, 
necessarily at the forefront of anything and it's not always it's not as much of a polarizing issue as others Mm -hmm. yeah i mean it's interesting i i suppose it i mean he must just have sort of like a general interest in it that led him to write a dissertation on this and write a book on it um but for you know to some extent how little we know about him at least and how he would roll rule in cases that were are more likely to come before the court i feel like there's a lot of unknowns about him right is Mm -hmm. that true um yeah which happens a lot with people on federal courts especially courts that aren't necessarily in hostile circuits when if a judge came from like the fifth circuit which is texas or the ninth circuit which is like california we're gonna know a lot more about their opinions because they get a lot more um controversial issues in front of them because they have really right or really left legislatures on the state level that are going to pass laws that are going to go up. It does it. And so if you're in a circuit, that's not as controversial, which is actually something about Merrick Garland. We didn't know a lot about him either. Um, If you're more in the middle ground, then your work is going to be a lot more administrative or just non-hostile opinions. So we don't know. That's part of why it's important to have a confirmation hearing. Mm Mm-hmm. Which I think is when a lot more of this is going to come out because that's going to be the first thing that we ask about is or that is asked is about abortion. I think. Um, so to transition a little bit, I'm curious from your perspective because you you pay so close attention to these issues. How should we judge nominees to the court? I, I read a, com- a lot of commentary from you know, left-leaning outlets like Think Progress on Gorsuch, and they attack him on the basis that he's not going to enact or protect progressive policy goals, things like environmental regulations, abortion contraception rights, um, others that where he's, you know, attacked from the left and praised from the right. Um, You know, I'm a progressive too. I think these goals are worth protecting. But if we decide if a justice is good or bad based on whether or not they agree with our policy positions, does that somehow like over politicize the court? Is that how we should, you know, should we separate our policy positions from maybe a separate opinion on how they viewed the law? Or do we really look to the court to implement or see through or protect policies that we prefer? Well, the lawyer in me says like, you should always look past and look at the person or not the person look at how good of a judge they are and really decide are they rational are they constitutional will they make a good addition that being said um i also think that senators have a duty to their constituents and if you're from a really liberal district and you were voted in for a purpose like these decisions that are coming down are going to affect them for possibly 30 years. Gorsuch is only 50 and he's going to be on the court for the rest of his life. And I do think you have somewhat of a duty maybe to vote based on those issues if you feel that it's your duty to your constituents. That being said, I do think that you can not vote and still not attack somebody as a judge. I think you can fully acknowledge that they're competent, they're sound in their decisions and they would have made a good they wouldn't they're not necessarily a bad person and I think that's when it gets politicized is when you start attacking them instead of um really weighing in on like how good of a lawyer they are Mm -hmm. so I don't know I think there's a balance is the right word even though Uh, that's not what anyone wants to hear um how do you think I don't I mean I I feel nostalgic for older times that may not have been the way that they are described when you look back at them like 50 years later. I mean, it, and this is sort of, I'm not a court expert, so I, um, my knowledge of the court is much more grounded in like the basic things that you learn in high school and college and not on, based on a lot of study. But um, the court to me always seemed like it was supposed to be like a referee to cert- to a certain extent that it, you know, the, the law is the law and, and they have to just decide how the law is implemented. And to some extent they, they can have different opinions like, you know, originalism and textualism or, 
or whether or not the Constitution is a living document, some of the kind of basic things, those are things that I think separate the types of justices that you have. But at the end of the day, to some extent, you kind of just need justices to be referees because they aren't elected. I mean, there's some political pressure and some political accountability because you hold a president accountable. And I think there's a good argument that because the president is the most visible person in government, you probably actually have more accountability for justices because you are paying so close attention to what a president does. Whereas, you know, a lot of judges that run on like local levels, I think they run kind of unopposed or there's not a lot of competition. Um, but yeah, I don't, it's just a weird thing. Like, to me, you either have to go one way or the other, either judges are political figures. And in which case I think we almost need to find better ways to hold them politically accountable or they're not. And they do deserve this sort of like separate process and things like lifetime appointments and things like that. Um, I don't, it feels like we're in this middle ground because I, I think most lawyers would say, and I'm a part of it, is that the judicial branch should probably be the one with the most power. Mm-hmm. And they're usually the one that's most overlooked. It's not what people think of necessarily when they think of government. Like, everyone pays really close attention to the president, and most people pay attention to Congress, but most people can't name every member of the Supreme Court, even though they should be the most important. And why I think that is because there's, like, this quote, they don't control the purse or the sword, and they're only there to be, like kind of like what you said, referees, they're only there to be objectively defenders of the Constitution and make sure that no other branch gets out of line. So I think what was really painful for me with Garland was the political polarization kind of obstructed what I saw as like my branch. Mm -hmm. You know, it was always like the one moment of sanity. And it, it, it was always like, and even now we're seeing that the court is functioning and it, it's, what what I perceive is still being very fair on both sides. And so one of the outcomes of making the court political, which it has become, is that you stop, you stop arguably the only objective player. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, that's what it looks at for hyper-politicalization to me was the Garland case which I'm an, I'm obviously very opposed to. I think that was a horrible decision that the Republicans did. I guess the other side of that argument, though, is if, just to take Roe v. Wade as an example, if a court was to overturn Roe v. Wade, that would there would be very concrete, specific policy ramifications. And for other things that we think of that have concrete policy ramifications, like the tax rate that you pay or... Um, you know, whether or not there's a draft in the military or, or things that are very visible and impact people, those things are decided by elected representatives. But I mean, every single decision that the Supreme Court does has direct policy implications. Hmm. And it's not always something that's like a sexy topic or something we see, but it's something that is really, really important. And that's one of the reasons why I'm really passionate about it, even in cases that aren't necessarily directing you, affecting you directly, probably do affect you in some way. I mean, even the case going up next month about the transgender student, you know, it's like that's going to have huge ramifications for everyone. And so, no, they're not elected officials, but I think there's something to be said about having people who have been there a long time. They've seen the political process back and forth, and they know that they can just make a decision that's right Hopefully that's not always the case, but I actually think usually they do vote their conscience in most cases without fear that they're going to be yanked from the court the next year by their Mm -hmm. constituents, which is part of the issue with Congress is that they can't always make the decision that they feel is right. Um, So I'm, I'm very pro my own branch. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So this came up, I saw this a lot um, when I was, familiarizing myself with the court. Why is it important that a justice is a good writer? Oh, oh man. There's so many feelings right now bubbling up. It's (laughs) so important. I think first off, something really interesting about Justice Scalia. It's I am a big Scalia fan. Like I'm out of the closet. I love him. I, I hated his decisions, but he was a really incredible judge because of the way he wrote. 
and his decisions were so sound and he would explore areas of law that he didn't even have to because he wanted to check every single box and it wasn't he could have just come out and say this is how I feel this is the ruling the end but he would go on to explain why it was and that gives you a context for when you're interpreting laws in the future because human conflict isn't necessarily black and white there's a lot of gray area, but if you have that explanation behind it instead of just a black and white decision, it helps lower uh, justices in the lower courts decipher what the court's intent was behind that law. And so that's the most important thing that a justice does is right. And part of why, actually, from everything I've read, of course, that she's an incredible writer. Yeah, it feels like a very high compliment to give. A justice. I mean, everything that I read about Gorsuch, right off the top, even people who disagreed with him very aggressively were like, he's smart and he's a good writer. Um, so, for, I, for the record, though, because I keep talking about conservative justices, the best writer on the court is Ruth Bader Ginsburg and always <laughs> will be. Her decisions just like make my heart swoon. They're beautiful. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, so we, we hope you enjoyed this discussion. Um, at least for the for the Peach Pod listeners, we you know, at least on this show, we don't get too outside of our own state very often. And I think that this is a a decision that the Senate is going to have to make that is going to have ramifications for a long time. And those those effects are going to filter down to our state. Um, but it's also just good to know what's going on in Washington and, and what's going on with a branch of the government that I think, you know, at least I don't understand as, as well as other people do. I, I think it's sort of the least understood branch if you're not someone who's super into it um but tori thank you so much for joining us thanks for having me i really i really enjoyed our talk yeah i did too um and we will talk to y'all next week that's our show for the week if you like what you heard you can share the show with a friend and go over to itunes and give us a rating and a review it really helps other people find our show our interns this week are alana pierce and courtney clark and we will talk to you next week take care y'all Thank you.